Good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. Today, we're going to continue our look at the book of Acts in Acts chapter 9, which will be the conversion of Saul, who we most readily recognize as the Apostle Paul. Some of you have heard me quote C.S. Lewis before, and in fact, I would definitely say that he is my favorite Christian author, but the truth is C.S. Lewis has written so much material, and he's provided such broad insight into so many topics that I feel a little sheepish claiming that he's my favorite since I still need to read so much of what he's produced. But I'll be honest, it's more than his writings, it's his testimony that strikes me the most. Because I see myself in C.S. Lewis, but I saw also see in him a confession that so few people are willing to make, or at least are willing to make publicly. A little bit of background on C.S. Lewis. He was born in Ireland in 1898, and he had an idyllic childhood. He had a brother. He loved playing in the halls and in the attic of this large house in Ireland. And He created a wonderful world with his imagination and created games with his imagination on this green-hilled countryside. But this joy abruptly ended when his mother passed away when Lewis was only nine years old. And at that point, he would later write that the great continent had sunk like Atlantis. There were now only islands of joy in the midst of an unsettled sea. All of these struggles turned him against faith in Christ, and he believed that his, his intellect and his mind was far beyond what he viewed as the simplistic thoughts of Christians. At age 17, Lewis wrote to a longtime friend and saying, I believe in no religion, there is absolutely no proof for any of them, and from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. Lewis began to believe that life was meaningless. But God was in the shadows, sovereignly working in Lewis's life. Lewis was never one to close his mind completely to reason and conversation. He read works by G.K. Chesterton, which I will say is another fan favorite of your pastor here, and he befriended several people at Oxford, not the least of which was J.R.R. Tolkien, a brilliant writer, a thinker, and also a Christian, and slowly the barriers of belief began to fall. And at one point, some of the sweetest words ever put to paper, Lewis wrote about his conversion in his book, Surprised by Joy. He said, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, that the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted God was God, and knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility of God, which will accept a convert even on such terms. So what was Lewis willing to admit that so few are? You see, Lewis was willing to acknowledge that he was full of pride. For much of his life, he was a self-confessed, arrogant person. He was controlling, he was narcissistic, he was self-absorbed. He believed he was in control of his own destiny and he wanted no part of God. And if you pointed this out to him, he took it as a compliment rather than a critique. But God has his way of getting our attention. And in this next section from Acts, Acts 9, it's one that I've been very excited to get into. Today we're going to look at the conversion of the Apostle Paul, one of the great climactic moments in the Bible, and the greatest conversion story of all time. This picks up in Acts chapter 9, at the very beginning of that chapter, 
Here we go. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way was an early way that uh, was referred to Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You know, the Apostle Paul, or Saul, as he was called largely before his conversion, really thought he was something, and by worldly metrics and measurements he was, and we should recognize some of his accomplishments. Paul gives us insights into who he was and some of his credentials throughout the New Testament when he was writing to the church at Philippi. He said, you know, if anybody has reason for confidence in their accomplishments, for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. To the Jews, of which Paul belonged, their religion, the practices that they had were so important. And though much of this became misplaced over time. To many, there was still a deep sincerity, and I believe that there was in Paul. And Paul describes his sincerity in detail. He had been circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel. He was from this highly respected tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, a strict religious group who taught that the Jews must follow all of the 600-plus laws of the Old Testament, plus the ceremonial laws that had been added over time. He was, if you will, a super Jew. He was deeply sincere and proud of his Jewish religion, and he had been taught under a very famous teacher called Gamaliel. But Paul also had another occupation. Now, this may not be as important, but after he had been trained, or perhaps even before he went to Jerusalem and being trained as a Pharisee, Paul returned to Tarsus, where he continued to trade that he had likely learned from his family, and that was tent making. Tarsus and the region of Sicilia was known for raising Goats. Young boys were taught from a very early age how to sew goat's hair together and make tents out of this material. And on top of all this, Paul was a Roman citizen. In fact, Paul was born a Roman citizen. The Roman emperor Pompey had made Cilicia a Roman province in 64 BC, and Tarsus, which is where Paul was from, was the capital there. And this may seem minor to us, but being a Roman citizen afforded people numerous benefits. Some people had to pay large sums of money for Roman citizenship. Others had to agree to serve in the Roman army for 25 years to earn citizens, and some were born citizens, but it did not come easily during this time period. So Paul was ethnically a Jew. By religion, he was a Pharisee. By citizenship, he was a Roman. And by education, he was a Greek. He truly was a very unique individual. And though we scour through the pages of Scripture and find many eclectic people, we will find no one like the Apostle Paul. And here he has a dramatic conversion 
experience. Now, not all conversions are equal in their drama, but all are equal in the miracle. A sinner is saved, a lost person is found, righteousness from Christ is imparted. And my own conversion, though deeply personal and individually significant, did not rise to the intense moment that we just read here in Scripture, and probably yours doesn't either, and that's okay. So Paul is on his way to Damascus, and Damascus was regarded as a beautiful city. One ancient author commented that Damascus was a handful of pearls and a goblet of emerald, reflecting this white city buildings that were surrounded by these green, lush trees and vegetation. And about 150,000 people lived in Damascus at the time. It was a large city, and Christians had scattered there because of Stephen's death following following his martyrdom and then the subsequent persecution. And they were preaching the gospel there. People were being converted, and Christians were sharing Jesus in the synagogues. And one prominent leader who was there had great respect among the fellow Christians, and this man was a man by the name of Ananias, who we will meet in just a moment. But as Paul made his ascent to this ancient city, something happened. A great light shined around Paul and the others, brighter than the blistering Middle Eastern sun, and Paul falls to his knees. Then comes a voice, Saul, Saul, but not just any voice. The voice that had said, let there be light, the voice that had caused galaxies to form throughout the universe, the voice that called Abraham out of his land into the promised land, the voice who had said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The voice who comforted Mary Magdalene after the resurrection was now the voice who called to Saul. Saul, Saul, the repetition of the word is emphatic. It was a rebuke. It was a hard call. And the authority didn't escape Paul's notice. Who are you, Lord? asked Paul. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, comes the response. But Paul ran into a quandary here. He didn't recognize the voice at first. After all, he didn't believe the Christian gospel. But then the one who he thought was dead had appeared to him and was speaking to him. Now, we later learn in Paul's testimony of this event from Acts 22 that Jesus appeared to him at this moment. Paul was hit hard with the reality of the risen Lord, and the news wasn't pleasant at first. You know, I think that we often believe and present this idea that when we first arrive at that moment of conversion, realizing that Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed to be, and his death, burial, and resurrection are true, that this is always a pleasant and joyous event for a person, but often it's not, because realizing this confronts us with a choice. Do we continue to live as we have been living, or do we now lay down our arms and surrender to Christ? Jesus tells Paul to enter Damascus, and then he'll be told what to do. So Paul rises up, but he cannot see, and he enters the city, and he's so disturbed by this event that he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Now, Luke doesn't indicate that this was any type of spiritual fast, but that Paul was rattled. He was shaken by what had happened. But here we pick up with the story in verse 10 of Acts 9. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, 
And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with your Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. God always has a plan. And Ananias, a prominent leader, was in Damascus. He would be used by God in the conversion of the great Apostle Paul. Ananias' name means whom Jehovah has graciously given, and God would graciously give Ananias to Paul to guide him to the truth. Now, Ananias has a response that you and I would likely have. Lord, I have heard about this man, the evil he has done, and what he has come to Damascus to do. Paul's reputation and his fury had traveled far ahead of him. And in God's graciousness, he allows Ananias to ask this question of concern, but he still directs him to go speak to Paul, which Ananias does. And I should say here, I'm using the name Saul and Paul interchangeably. Saul was a Hebrew name. Paul was a Greek version of that. And so it's okay to use them interchangeably, even though for the most part, we see the apostle referred to as Paul throughout the remainder of the New Testament. So Ananias goes here and he enters the house where Paul is and he lays his hands on him. And laying on of hands was a lot of things here. We're not given insight into what Ananias was thinking and feeling in this moment, but I have to confess, had it been me, I would have been shaking in fear about what was to happen in placing my hands on this vicious predator and persecutor of Christians. But those fears were quickly dispelled. Ananias places his hands on Paul and tells him, Jesus had sent him. Paul regains his sight, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and we read that something like scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized, he eats, and he's strengthened. And I would imagine that the author of Amazing Grace, that famous song, John Newton, who wrote it, who himself had a dramatic conversion, borrowed from this moment as he penned the words to the now immortal song, Once was blind, but now I see. And looking at scripture with the following preview of the work the Apostle Paul will now do and undertake, we'll close with this in Acts 9. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now the reality is the story of Paul's conversion in Acts is a story. It's an origin story of the work that he will do. And we'll learn more about this event as Paul describes it later in the book of Acts. 
But as always, God has some beautiful lessons for us to learn from these great moments in Scripture. So let's talk about these, these timeless takeaways, as I call them. The first we see is the sovereignty of God in salvation, the sovereignty of God. Now, something that we can miss that is clearly taught in Scripture is the sovereign work of God in the salvation of a lost person. And if we ever needed evidence for God's sovereignty, we see it in this story with the Apostle Paul. And by sovereignty, what do I mean by that? By sovereignty, I mean God is Lord over all creation, Lord over all, and he exercises his will in any way he chooses. But since God is love, he does this in a way that is completely righteous and just, even though we may not always fully realize this in the moment from our perspective. Now, Paul would expand on God's work in salvation in his letter to the Roman church. In Romans 3.10, he said, no one is righteous, no, not one. And in Romans 3.23, we learn that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, friend, the only reason that you and I are saved is because God had mercy on us and initiated salvation in your heart and mine. Not because we woke up one day and decided we needed to do better. Not because we somehow attained some divine knowledge or secret information, but because God in his infinite love, in his infinite grace, in his infinite mercy, figuratively reached down and saved us. Now, we must respond to this call. Sometimes the call comes in a still, small voice, a whisper, and sometimes it becomes a hard knock. You know, God is kind. And I believe God gently nudges us to him. But if we do not respond to that still small voice and those gentle nudges, God may choose to turn up the volume louder and louder until he finally, fully has our attention. God made divine contact with Paul in this situation. And one of the last people on earth we would ever expect to be saved, Paul, God saved as Christ sovereignly worked in his life. So that's the sovereignty of God in salvation. Next, we see the grace of God in salvation. Grace is a constant theme in the Bible, God's grace. Certainly, we, we as humans can extend grace to others, but the Bible presents a grace as a divine characteristic of God. God's grace is choosing to bless us rather than curse us. God's grace is choosing to save us rather than condemn us. God's grace is choosing to love us rather than cast us away from his presence. And Paul never got over the grace shown to him by Jesus Christ. Paul told the Ephesians, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And I pray that I never get over the amazing grace that God has showed me. And that's my prayer for you as well, that you never get over the grace that God shows you. Third, we have the role of the faithful in God's work. You know, we sometimes overlook some heroes in the Bible. This great story of the Apostle Paul's conversion is sandwiched between two other great men of faith, Stephen and Ananias. Stephen's prayer was answered. Do you remember Stephen's last words when he was martyred? At the very end of Acts chapter 7, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And remember that Paul was standing to the side, approving of the death of Stephen. And here, Stephen's prayer was answered. Paul's sin was not held against him, as the grace of God reached to even him. And then we have Ananias. Ananias is a name that isn't obscure, perhaps, but it certainly doesn't impose it upon us like the Apostle Paul. And he went to Paul, despite the threat, and ministered to him. He placed his hands on him. He encouraged him. He discipled him. He loved him. And may I say that you will never know the impact that you can have on the life of another person this side of eternity. But that shouldn't keep us from trying and working diligently to minister to others. Precious is the role of the saints of God who are faithfully serving him to bring the lost to the foot of the cross of Jesus. And then finally, number four, a story of true conversion. You know, people make some mistakes when they look at the Christian life sometimes. For some, it's expecting that on day one, the day a person becomes a follower of Christ, that they will, that all the sin, that all the gunk, all the bad habits, all the crassness, all the roughness immediately goes away. Now, we know that doesn't happen. As I often say, salvation is the miracle of a moment, but sanctification takes a lifetime and, in fact, will only fully be realized at the final resurrection. But for others, it is believing that becoming a Christian is just a moment, and there is little to no effort to learn more about Christ or become more like Christ. And at best, these are people who may be saved because of God's matchless mercy, but they live bony, malnourished, spiritual life, a life that very little resembles true conversion. Paul was completely and thoroughly converted. Remember, his goal was to go to Damascus and other places and drag Christians off to prison. And in fact, in Acts 8, we learned that he had already been successful at this. We learned that he was ravaging the church. That's an interesting word. It has the image of a wild boar tearing up the ground or an army laying waste to a city. Paul's goal was to completely snuff out Christianity and put a stop to its rapid spread. But in a great twist, Paul would be the very one who would take the gospel to the ends of the known world. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament documents, and we learn much about Paul from his own pen. He had a true sense of who he was, a true sense of self. Paul wrote to Timothy, a man much younger than Paul that he loved dearly, a man that Paul mentored. And he said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And listen to this, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Imagine those words. The man who wanted to destroy Christianity and any mention of the name of Jesus erupts in a symphony of praise. 
Sometimes I feel I fail to convey what happens when a person is converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the reason for that is that there are no human words to fully explain God's great miracle of redemption. But I have noticed that we think of conversion of being a person that shifts from one religion to another religion or moving from one denomination to another denomination. But true Christian faith is a conversion no matter what our starting point was or is. And our starting point was a rebellious, prideful, arrogant, self-centered, self-absorbed, hell-bound sinner. Now, may I say to you, when I became a Christian, I didn't think of myself that way. But friends, the closer I have gotten to Jesus, and I do believe I have gotten closer through a lot of experience, both good and bad, though the bad has largely been my fault, that the more I have recognized the deplorable state I was in before Jesus saved me, the more I realize the deplorable state I'm in even now, apart from Jesus. You know, at the risk of sounding vain for a moment, most folks who know me or know of me would probably say something like, if you ask them about me, say, you know, yeah, he's, he's an all right guy. Yeah, he's, he's pretty nice. I like him okay. I'm, you know, pretty nice fellow, plays well with others. That sort of thing. But those people are wrong. You say, I'm not all right. I'm not a nice fellow. I'm not capable. There is no good in me apart from Christ. And even on my best day, even on my best day, there is not one molecule in me of holiness apart from Jesus Christ. And let me say to you that the day I finally fully realized this, and often it's a day-by-day renewal. The day, uh, it was such a fully liberating day for me. This is going to sound strange, but I loved realizing just how pitiful and wicked I was because it gave me so much gratitude and a heart full of worship to realize how holy, gracious, and righteous God is. True Christian conversion is being completely radically transformed. In fact, Jesus describes it as being born again. Paul said in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Interesting what Paul says, crucified with Christ. Kill your old self. Kill it. That's the problem with so many of us Christians in the modern world. We get saved, and then we carry this filthy corpse of our old sinful self around, and the stench of its decay affects our witness. And we go on living these sinful lives, saying the same old things, watching the same old crap, listening to the same old garbage, and acting like we've got it all under control. Because the greatest threat to a man is to imply that they may not be in control of their own destiny. And somehow dragging that old carcass around gives them some sense of control of their own lives. And that's what it's all about for so many. Control. And nobody, I mean nobody, not even God, is going to tell me what to do. That's the attitude that so many have. That's the attitude that I have. And if I'm honest, that I have to fight with daily. But Paul knew his starting point. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a sinner, the foremost of sinners. But he received mercy. Do you feel that way? 
Do you feel and understand that the mercy God has shown you through Jesus Christ is real and it's there and it's true and it's beautiful? Friend, if you do not, may I encourage you to pray and ask God to reveal that to you. Once that happens, you will get up off of your knees a changed man or woman with a new understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. When C.S. Lewis first arrived in Oxford, England, he departed the beautiful steam train that he had ridden, and he gathered all of his luggage, and he began heading down the road on foot toward the university. And as he walked farther and farther away from the railway station, he became increasingly disappointed. The buildings that he saw were plain and uninspiring. The shops and the storefronts lacked character. Everything seemed so plain and dull and gray and unfulfilling. But it wasn't until Lewis reached the end of town that he realized that he had been going in the wrong direction the entire time. So he turned around and in the distance he saw the spires of Oxford University rising into the air. They were beautiful and grand and marvelous, and they seemed to call to him as a land of promise and opportunity. C.S. Lewis would later recall this event as a very symbolic one in his own conversion and say that this little event was an allegory for his whole life. He had been walking one way, and it was dull and meaningless and plain, and it wasn't until he realized that he was wrong and turned around and looked towards Christ that he saw the beauty and the joy once again in life. A friend of C.S. Lewis commented that he was the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. Paul's conversion that we just read about would change the course of history. No other event apart from the resurrection of Jesus looms so large in the New Testament. Paul would take three missionary journeys, write 13 New Testament letters. He would stand before soldiers, governors, and kings. He would endure shipwreck, imprisonment, floggings, and abandonment. And he would die a martyr before the evil Roman emperor Nero. But through all of this, he would say, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we allow Paul to be an example of what a life can be who is completely surrendered to Christ and what we can accomplish for the glory of God. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that there will never be another Apostle Paul, but the work you had him do is still the same work that you call us to do today. God, thank you for your sovereignty that orchestrates the events of our lives to come to you. Thank you for your grace that does not give us what we deserve, but grants us pardon, mercy, and love. Thank you for these great stories that jump from the pages of Scripture to remind us of who you are and your work in the world. God, we ask that you will please bless this church and its people for the purpose of glorifying you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.